hitting my brother. He said a mean word. And not sharing. Um, when you push someone, fighting. I'm stealing the clicker. Repentant means, um, I don't know. I don't really know. I think it means to um, stop what you're doing and follow God. Jesus, I'm done with my sins, and I'm going to follow your path, not my path. And you repent your sins. That means you're, you're not going to do it again. not a thing I'd like to do all the time because I didn't want to say my sorry. Well, I, ha I had, I did have to say sorry, but I never had to repent. <laughs> That's worth it, right? <laughs> we don't, we don't even need to hear a sermon now. <laughs> well, good morning, Kettlebrook family. So a couple of weeks ago, we kicked off a new series called Growing Up Again, and then, of course, we had a snow day, and so uh, we want to jump right back into it this morning. And, and so the heart of, the, of where this series comes from is an understanding that I think everyone agrees with, that we all need to grow up uh, physically and emotionally for all of us. Uh, there needs to be a process of developing toward maturity, and at, and at some point, all of us in the room who are adults, at least... Um, had to grow up. We had to learn how to drive, how to get a job. Um, we need to, to move out, to learn how to live on our own and cook on our own and make coffee on our own. Very important. Um, and we all needed to go from being dependent to independent. And, and so I think we all get that. That's, that's supposed to be a normal part of life. And, and that's, I think, why there's probably so many jokes right now about millennials um, and to help you understand what I'm talking about, I, I have a picture that sums it up. So, you know, <laughs> let that sink in. Run like millennials run from commitment. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. It, it's one of the things that we understand is we need to grow up, and it includes these things. And so it's one thing to have to, if you're a parent, you have to take care of and feed a five-year-old. It's, it's another if, um, you know, something's gone wrong, if when your 35-year-old is, is still needing to be fed and being taken care of and, and living in their parents' basement. Uh, and becoming a parent is often one of those things that helps us grow up. My, my kids certainly have helped me grow up. Um, and I have a picture of my little Ella girl. Nope, no, oh, you almost rushed it there, Stephanie. So there's Ella. So um, she is happiest when she is fed, well-fed and changed. Uh, but but if nothing changed in her life, this is this is what she'd look like in 35 years. <laughs> so let's go back to the other picture, Stephanie, because we don't want to keep looking at that other one. Get that out of our minds. So Ellen needs to grow up, uh, and her parents are definitely on board with making that happen, right? You know. So we see this in other areas of life too. My wife Sharice is a physical therapist, uh, and so when someone is recovering from an injury or a surgery. Um, they'll often need crutches for a period of time. And the whole purpose of a crutch is in order to help you get able to walk again on your own. And so if she saw a patient years later and they were still walking with crutches, she would know something's gone wrong, right? That we, hopefully we all understand uh, this concept of growth and growing up. And, and most of us, I think, are able to recognize when something has gone wrong. 
uh, that that we would be able to see when it's not the if it's not the way it's supposed to be, uh, that it's not the maturity that we'd expect or desire. And spiritually speaking, Scripture talks a lot about maturity of our faith and maturity of our discipleship. The apostles Peter and Paul both both talk about this concept of the of the spiritual milk needed in our spiritual infancy. But there's other places like in Hebrews where we see that there needs to be a growing up, a time of moving past this milk, um, moving beyond the milk. And and I think we can all point to areas in our own spiritual lives where where we would say we need to grow up. Uh, If if we're being truly honest with ourselves and, and honest before God, I think that we could all admit things that maybe we still deal with, things that still need to change in our lives, things we wish we didn't do, uh, things that still cause us relational damage with each other, relational damage with God, uh, areas where we'd say, yeah, I need to grow up. And whether that's anger issues or lust issues or trust or anxiety issues or pride or selfishness or avoiding conflict, uh, we can try to run from these things but it's just going to follow us wherever we go. And we need, we need to grow in them, and we need to grow up. And sometimes when we realize this, uh, we can try different things in our lives, right? We tr- try changing routines or changing friends or changing media habits or even starting to go to the church gathering more often. But I think I know from my own personal life, the number one thing that has caused me to grow up is Jesus Christ. And so he's the one that we need to look to. Jesus is the single one who's going to help us grow up. And when we look to the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, there are several key and basic tenets that are really required uh, as the first building blocks of our spiritual maturity and of our discipleship. Things like forgiveness, humility, repentance. And last time, uh, Troy Lather came up and he talked to us about humility. And today, what we're going to look at is repentance. And our kids uh, did a pretty awesome job of uh, of setting the stage for us uh, in the video. So now what I want to do is I want to take a look at one of Jesus' parables that we see recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open up with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14. And if you have a red Bible, that's on page 714 of the red Bibles. And if you'd like a Bible to use, wave at Amy. She would love to bring one up to you. So as you're, as you're turning there, let me give you some of the backdrop, the backstory kind of for what's going on. Uh, Jesus talks about two specific people, which, come, uh, which really represent two well-known groups. Pharisees and tax collectors. Uh, And this matters because this would have made all the difference to how people heard the parable back then. So Pharisees, of course, were a group of men that were known uh, back then as religious leaders. Uh, And then they were were basically the models of society. Uh, the, The people who were so perfect, so holy, and so righteous that they were both extremely looked up to and, and also probably at the same time, they also probably put you on edge a little bit. 
see, when the Pharisees first started as a group, the reason that they even came into existence, the reason that they came into being in the first place was because they looked around them and they saw a lawless people, a people that were not following God's commands. And they associated Israel's captivity with Rome as being a direct result of the people's disobedience to God's law. And so they not only tried to perfectly follow the commands, uh, they led the charge in making sure everyone else perfectly followed the commands. And they even went ahead and made extra laws, like 613 of them, so that no one would break the commands. And if you did, they would find you. (laughs) It's kind of like uh, Liam Neeson. I will find you and I will kill you. (laughs) That was kind of the Pharisees a little. They would find you and they'd either shun you or they would kind of give you a a, a proverbial scarlet letter in the community or worse yet, sometimes they would actually drag you before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. And so you can kind of see why the Pharisees were both respected but also feared and, and to some degree considered perfect. And the Pharisees liked that. They liked it a lot. Now, the other man Jesus is going to talk about uh, belongs to another notorious group, tax collectors. Um, Tax collectors, uh, even today, are not very well loved. Um, So you can just imagine it's quite a bit worse. This goes way beyond that. Because remember, Israel back then was captive to Rome. And so that meant being a, a province of Rome, you had to pay Roman taxes. Of course, they loved that. Uh, And so interestingly, the tax collectors themselves weren't Roman. They were often Jewish Hebrew people that were enlisted to do this. And so they were considered by their own countrymen as traitors. And so traitors really to their own people, they were working for the enemy. And not only that, the way that tax collectors got paid was by collecting extra tax. And the way they ensured they got paid was by bringing some Roman muscle with them, some Roman troops. And the worst part, the people that they were collecting tax from were usually poor and powerless. And so you can kind of really easily see pretty quickly why tax collectors were hated. Uh, They were some of the lowest in society and they knew it. And that's the backdrop that Jesus chooses to use for this parable, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And of course, Jesus does what he often does is he's going to classically turn this on its head. He's going to turn over the societal norms that we would expect and flip-flop the roles of what true spirituality looks like between these two individuals. So let's take a look at that parable now. Luke 18, and we're going to be reading verses 9 through 14. To some who were consider, let me try again. <laughs> to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, 
Have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I want to take a moment uh, and actually pray before we dive in any further. So please pray with me. Father, it is a privilege for us to be able to dig into the words of Jesus, and I ask that the words of Jesus would permeate our hearts, that Jesus was desiring to teach us about life in the kingdom and what it looks like to come before you um, and, and having a posture of our heart that's right. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us understand that and you would open up our ears um, and our hearts to your word. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I think what we need to do is actually start by closely looking at verse 9. So here's verse 9 again. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. That's the audience, right? That's who Jesus has in mind when he's telling this parable. Self-righteousness isn't just a thing now. It was, it was a thing back then, too. Uh, and Jesus had in mind people who didn't think that they needed to change People who thought that there was nothing wrong with how they were living. And our NIV translation uh, says the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Uh, but other scholars have noted that uh, perhaps in the original Greek, uh, original Greek language, the better way to say this is maybe to say the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. And he's standing by himself because he's ceremonially clean. He's at a distance from the people because he doesn't want to touch them. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't want to be defiled by them because they'll spiritually dirty him. And, and these people that are pro- he's, he's actually probably seeing uh, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even our tax collector. And you ready for the awkward moment? This probably wasn't a silent prayer. So usually these prayers were said out loud. So he's pretty much publicly shaming everyone else and lifting himself up before God in the process. And in his prayer, he's not just bragging that he's kept the law, the Ten Commandments, and and not just not just keeping the extra laws, the 613 add-on that were meant to be a fence around the law. He's he's saying he's going further yet. This guy was really special, and he wants everybody to know it. And and the people who would have been around him would have been hearing this, would have been like, wow. (laughs) And his prayer for himself basically is, gosh, I'm glad I'm not like you people. God, aren't you glad too? (laughs) (laughs) And he compares himself. And he sees himself, he sees his own righteousness based on the righteousness of others. He compares himself to them. And before we move on to the tax collector, I want to say, be careful. We need to be careful. It can be far too easy for us to also say, God, thank you that I am not like this Pharisee. But the minute that we do that, the minute that we compare ourselves to him, we actually find that we're a lot more like that Pharisee than we realize. So now the tax collector, on the other hand, he 
also stands apart from the crowd. Uh, but he does that for a totally different reason. It's because he knows he's defiled, a sinner. Uh, and he considers himself unworthy of both coming before the presence of the Lord as well as joining in the assembly of worshipers. And there's this true sense of humility in his behavior. And he also prays out loud, but his prayer is one of brokenness and honesty, owning his junk. I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. I don't like the way I am. I need to change. And one of the things that uh, we can easily miss here is where it talks about him beating his breast uh, in his cast down state that he's in. And that might just sound to us kind of like it's a you know, heartfelt moment, uh, but biblical scholar Kenneth Bailey uh, has po- points out that in Middle Eastern cultures today, it is only women who will beat their chest, and even then, only at very tragic moments, like a, like a really tragic funeral. Men never do it, except in one case with Shiite Muslim men who do this special ceremony held only once a year. In the New Testament, the only place that we see this behavior where it's possibly both men and women is at the crucifixion, at the end of Luke, when Jesus dies. And so this man beating his breast publicly and praying out loud is letting everyone know not how righteous he is, but how broken he is and how utterly in need of God's mercy. And as Jesus often does, he, he turns this everything on its head. Uh, at the very end, Jesus sums it up um, by saying how it was the tax collector who went home justified, made right before God, and not the Pharisee. And that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves, especially before God, will be exalted. And I think there's several things that I think we can learn from this parable, but there's one main idea that underlies it all. It's something that Mike actually said a couple weeks ago in West Bend, and it's that owning our junk is the first step in growing up to become kingdom people. Let's put that on a slide. Owning our junk is the first step in growing up to become kingdom people. That's where true repentance begins. And owning our junk in repentance, what we see in this passage, is that it takes the form of posture. And I think there are three specific postures of repentance that we see. That two men go up to the temple, but their postures are entirely different. And so here's what I think we see from the text. We see a posture of honesty with ourselves, There's a posture of brokenness with God and there's a posture of confession with others. And then it starts, of course, with a posture of honesty with ourselves. The Pharisee was the exact opposite of honest. He wasn't honest with himself in seeing his own sin. He compared himself to everyone else. Why do do we compare well, we compare so that we can feel better about our flaws and the, and the unchanged junk in our lives. 
And internally, we justify our sin. Well, why do we justify? Well, because inside we want to come up with reasons that it's okay. That, because we don't want to change. We don't, we don't want to own up to it. And why can't we own up to it? Well, this is, this is really coming to the heart of it. It's because we want to keep it hidden. We don't want it to be exposed because of shame and because of fear. Fear of consequences. Because of pain. C.S. Lewis says, Those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly about the sins of others. It is healthier to think of one's own. It is the reverse of morbid. It is not even in the long run very gloomy. A serious attempt to repent and really know one's own sins is in the long run a lightening and relieving process. Of course, there's bound to be a first dismay and offer often terror and great pain, later great pain. Yet that is much less in the long run than the anguish of a mass of unrepented and unexamined sins lurking in the background of our minds. It is a difference between the pain of the tooth about which you should go to the dentist and the simple, straightforward pain which you know is getting less and less every moment when you have had the tooth pulled out. Owning our junk in growing up to become kingdom people starts with a posture of honesty. Honesty with ourselves. It's, it's the first real step in any change. Not, not excuses, but owning it, acknowledging it so that we can turn from it. We like focusing on the sins of others, but real repentance focuses only on my sin. It's the only sin that we can change. We like to focus on the sins of others because we can always find someone worse than us, right? On the news or on Facebook or my in-laws, right? <laughs> we, we can find ways to feel superior, uh, but focusing on the sin of others never helps us change our own sins. It makes us feel better, but it doesn't allow us to get better. It doesn't allow us to grow up. And if we want to grow up, we need to focus on only one person's sins, our own. Right? Then, when, when Jesus tells us how the tax doctor approached the temple and approached God, Jesus shows us that he was broken, not even looking up beating his breast. So owning our junk and growing up uh, to become kingdom people requires that we take a posture of brokenness with God. And brokenness is a posture of the heart. It's a posture of coming before a holy, righteous, worthy God and recognizing our own unholiness, unrighteousness, and unworthiness and crying out for mercy. It's, it's seeing yourself rightly before a holy God with all our blemishes and all of our faults and saying, I need forgiveness. I need wholeness because I recognize I'm broken. And our hearts need to be broken over our sin. Our hearts need to break for all the areas that hold us back from God. They need to break for the things that we choose that separate us from Him. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. We don't find God with our heads held high. We don't find Jesus Christ with our heads held high. We find Him on our knees 
or we don't find him at all. Because either we choose to go to our knees on our own in brokenness of our heart, or he'll allow us to be broken to a point where we can no longer stand. Kettlebrook hosts a ministry called Celebrate Recovery on Wednesday nights, and it's basically a Christian 12-step program with accountability and other things built in. And occasionally on staff, we'll hear some encouraging stories um, that have come out of that. But it's interesting because all too often, um, one of the sobering things that we hear is, is just how many people had to hit rock bottom first. That it, that it took something drastic and traumatic for a lot of these folks to finally give up and surrender to God. And I've seen this firsthand. About a year or two ago, a former student of mine contacted me and wanted to get together. And uh, he, he was telling me, um, he, he told me how he was getting sober and uh, he was turning his life to Jesus. And that's always awesome to hear, but I asked him, why now? You know, what, what changed? And the point of brokenness for him was about a week before, um, on a night when he and a bunch of college buddies had gotten drunk and they decided to go drag racing, and one of the, his best friend crashed, and shortly after, he died in his arms. If we don't honestly look at our sin and become broken over it, God may sometimes need to break us so that we can finally repent, grow up, and become kingdom people. Lastly then, owning our junk and growing up to become kingdom people requires that we take a posture of confession with others. That's what the tax collector did. He publicly owned it. He, He publicly acknowledged his sin before God and before others. And I'll be the first to admit that this is a hard one. This is a real hard one for me. Uh, Because, you know, we can take a posture and a position of honesty with ourselves. We can and have brokenness before God. But that last part about confession to others, that can be scary. That can be terrifying. For me, one of the things, I've been often accused of being heavy-handed with things, meaning I can tend to break things. That's fine when these things are my own things. But for some strange reason, I I tend to break other people's things. And um, I'm I'm getting better at uh, trying to own up to that. (laughs) And so uh, when I was younger, I tended, that that stuff tended to be my dad's stuff. And uh, I would be terrified uh, of having anyone find out. And so I'd be playing in the basement, I'd be rifling through a box of my dad's old gadgets, and invariably I'd break something. And I'd just be like, so I'd, I'd just try to hide it. I'd try to stuff it back in the bottom of the box and hope that, hope that nobody noticed. And, and then, of course, I'd have these feelings of guilt and fear and shame and, and hoping that I would, I would never get found. Well, the problem with burying our sin within ourselves is that it tends to come back up again. And it tends to come out. And it tends to destroy us from within. And even when we've honestly recognized the sin within ourselves and been broken over it with God, if we don't confess it and expose it, it can tend to still have power over us. James 4.16 says, 
Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Growing up by owning our junk and confessing it to others completes the process of true repentance and true healing can begin. In the, in the, in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, uh, we see the posture of true repentance in the tax collector. There's a posture of honesty. There's a posture of brokenness. And there's a posture of confession. Owning our junk in order to grow up to become kingdom people. But there's one more powerful truth that this parable still has for us. Kenneth Bailey notes that these two men, the Pharisee and the tax collector, were going up to the temple at the same time. He says, historically, there's only one daily service that these men would have attended at the same time. The service of the atonement offerings. He says, each service began outside the sanctuary at the great high altar with a sacrifice for the sins of Israel of a lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the altar following a precise ritual. He notes that while our NIV translation that we read um, shows that the tax collector said, have mercy on me. Uh, and in the, the word in Greek, he says, isn't the common word that's used for mercy. In fact, more often, it's translated as the word atonement. Atonement means to reconcile, satisfy, and make right by substitution. And so we could translate his plea before God as, Oh God, make an atonement for me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, sacrificed on the ultimate altar, the cross, by his blood, has made an atonement for each of us that believes in his death and resurrection and who would come to him in true repentance. True repentance of heart. Coming before him and saying, Lord, make an atonement for me through the blood of Jesus Christ. Me, a sinner. That we'd be owning our junk, owning it to ourselves, to God, and to others so that we can grow up and become the kingdom people that he's calling us to be. I want my daughter, Ella, to grow up in maturity of faith, owning her faults, her sins, and finding atonement in Jesus Christ. And I hope she prays. I hope all of us can pray like that articulate young girl in the video who said, Jesus, I'm done with my sins, and I'm going to follow your path not my path, and I repent my sins. Let's pray together. Father, I, I am in awe of who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Father, what a blessing to hear it from even our, our young children in our congregation uh, of who you are and what you have done in Jesus Christ that we know we can, um, in our honesty with ourselves, 
come before you in brokenness and, and lay these things down before you and that you desire us even to take it further for, for full healing, that you've given us the body of Christ that we can confess our sins to so that we can continue to grow up in maturity to becoming kingdom people, the, the kind of people that you desire us to be the kind of people that can be useful in your kingdom in bringing your mission, the very things that you have called us to. So Father, I ask in these basic tenets of growing up in our faith that you would open our hearts to these first steps, that you would show us areas of our own lives, that you would help us see clearly areas of sin that need to be recognized, they need to be called out, they need to be owned. And that you would then also lead us to a place where we could be broken over those things, crying out to you for mercy and for atonement. Father, I do ask that you would help us walk to that scary step too of, of confessing it to one another. That we could walk together as the body of Christ is meant to, to hold one another up as we pursue Jesus Christ in his better way for life and for eternal life. We pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.